Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We have just read from Zechariah, but if you'll indulge me, I'd like you to turn for a moment to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 1, and look at the opening words of that epistle. Hebrews chapter 1, we read these words, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. When we read Hebrews, of course, we immediately make the transition and start thinking about Jesus. We think about the way the Son of God is the absolute revelation of God himself. But this morning, I want us to pause and focus on the beginning of that opening statement. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Because as we look at Zechariah, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing God speak through the prophets. And in Zechariah's case, especially, we're seeing the the many ways in which God spoke illustrated. God spoke through the prophets, but he spoke in many different ways. And, And prophecy looks a little different in the life and ministry of one prophet compared to another. And in Zechariah's case, in the case of one phase of his ministry compared to another. But we've seen this already. We're, we're in Zechariah chapter 6, so we're not quite halfway through the book, but we've already seen a pretty dramatic shift in the way that prophecy comes through Zechariah. At the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, when we saw his first oracle, remember, Zechariah begins to prophesy during the ministry of Haggai, that four-month period, And Zechariah's first prophecy reads like it could have been Haggai's. It has a very similar character and form. The content is basically the same kind of thing that Haggai was saying to the people. And and it sounds a little bit like a sermon, kind of an inspiration, but also a challenge to the people. But then everything changes. And we've been looking at the night visions, and and that's a a whole different way that God reveals himself through dreams, through visions, through these surreal and fantastic symbols, right? That's very different and requires a different way of interpretation in order to understand what it is that God is speaking about. Well, now, as you've just seen in our text, Zechariah continues to receive a prophetic mission. God continues to to push him forward and tell him to do things and say things. But again, this is totally different. And I hope you can appreciate the difference between what's happening here and what was happening in the night visions. So the night visions, remember, this is all taking place in the course of one evening and a series of dreamlike, surreal images. But suddenly, Zechariah gets marching orders. Now he's told to do something in the real world, not just to to see something and then relate what he sees, but to actually take action, to actually do something. That's another way that God works through prophets. It's not unusual, though. This is a recognized 
form of prophecy, God often worked through prophets by having them basically act out the message that he wanted to send. The most famous example, of course, would be the prophet Hosea, whose entire life is turned upside down because God wants to create an object lesson of Israel's unfaithfulness to him. And so the prophet has to live a certain way and do certain things in order to send that message. Now, that's what Zechariah is called to do here. He's given an order. He needs to take silver and gold from a group of returned exiles. He needs to fashion that treasure into a crown, and then he's to place that crown on the head of Joshua the high priest. Now, in the night visions, we encountered Joshua the high priest in the central vision where we saw the high priest cleansed by the angel of Yahweh, his iniquity taken away. But now, in the real world, the high priest Joshua will be crowned. There will be a coronation that takes place following on these night visions, and it kind of sums up the message of them. It's not an accident, I think, that the central vision features Joshua. And then this first action in the real world also centers on Joshua as well. Typically, this kind of prophetic assignment comes in two parts. There's like an act, and then there's a word. God will command the prophet to do something, and then he will command him to say something. Uh, I want you to do something, God says, and then I want you to say something that explains, at least in part, what you just did. And so we see that echoed here as well. There's the command to do the coronation, and then there's a word that will be spoken to Joshua, and that will provide the explanation for what's happening. So verses 9 through 11 is the coronation, and then 12 and 13 provide the explanation. And it's a good thing that an explanation is provided because the coronation raises some questions and would have raised some serious questions for the men who were asked to perform it. And those questions really do need to be addressed. So let's think about the questions raised by the coronation before we look at the explanation. What questions would have been raised by this act that God insists be done? So here's the first question, and this is really practical. Uh, Won't we get in trouble for doing this? God tells Zechariah, make a crown, like do this in public, take the treasure from these named public individuals, make it into a crown, and then have a public coronation ceremony. And people have to be wondering, is this really a good idea? Uh, Won't we get in trouble for doing this? Won't the Persians be upset If we do this, won't they object? Because the land that the people have returned to remains under Persian control. It's part of the Persian empire. The leaders of the people, Zerubbabel and Joshua, are the governor and the high priest. There's not a king who rules over them. They already have a king, and he is the king of Persia who gave his permission so that the people could come and occupy the land. Their opponents, the ones who don't want them to rebuild the temple, the accusation they're constantly sending back to the capital is that these people aren't really loyal. They're actually looking to set up a kingdom for themselves. They're not uh, going to essentially 
obey you, but having gotten the permission to come back, they will defy you. So it seems as if what God is telling them to do would play into the hands of their enemies. But their enemies say they want to crown their own king. They want to set up their own kingdom. And now it's looking exactly like that is true. And they're going to crown themselves a king. That's one question. Won't we get in trouble? But there's a second question that's raised by this. And this one is, is maybe a little more technical, but in the lives of royal succession, uh, you often run into technical questions. The question is, aren't we crowning the wrong guy? If we're going to make a crown and we're going to put it on somebody's head, there's an obvious candidate who's here among us to do this with. There is a man who is descended from the Davidic kings, a man who is the rightful heir of the kingdom, and he's not the one that we've been told to crown. It's not Joshua who stands in that Davidic line. It's Zerubbabel, who was the subject of the fifth vision, the governor. If we're going to crown somebody, surely we should crown the governor, Zerubbabel, because he is a descendant of David. He rightfully should hold office as king. And Joshua isn't just not the, the rightful heir, but he's also the high priest. And by crowning him, it seems like we're sending the wrong message. Because God has done a pretty good job in the past of separating the offices of priest and king. And there have been times in the history of Israel where you've seen, for example, kings encroach upon the the sovereignty of priests and been punished for it. You think, for example, of King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, who decides he's tired of waiting and he can just go ahead and do that sacrifice anyway. And that's bad. That's something he's punished for and censured for. He's a bad king because he doesn't respect the boundary between royal authority and priestly authority. So God in the Old Testament has established something a little bit like what we might call separation of church and state. Kings aren't meant to do priestly things and vice versa. And when that happens, when there is that crossover, when God authorizes it, it's significant that he does something like that. So it seems as if Zerubbabel, not Joshua, should be crowned, assuming we're going to crown anyone and bring all the trouble that comes along with that. And we should really keep kings and priests separate because for the health of our kingdom, it's always good to have somebody who can speak truth to power and get the idea. So these are questions raised. Whenever God enters into history, and he gives an assignment to his people, uh, it's natural sometimes to question what you've been asked to do, to wonder if this is really the right thing. We shouldn't question the commands of God and the word of God, but I suppose that we can, in our weakness, take comfort in the fact that in scripture, people do it all the time and are often confused about what they've been asked to do. But this action is followed up by an explanation. And the explanation answers many of the questions that would have been raised by the action and then goes farther. So as we look at the explanation at the word that has been given to Zechariah to speak to Joshua after he's been crowned, we start seeing that this coronation isn't an ordinary coronation. For one thing, Joshua will be crowned, but he won't reign. 
He's not intended to reign. He's going to be crowned, and then the crown is going to be held in safekeeping. He won't continue to wear it. The, the whole thing is a symbolic action that's being acted out as a sign to send a message. Remember in Zechariah 3, when Joshua was the focus of the night vision, he's told that the men around him are men who are assigned, that they have sign value. And here you see that illustrated. They're going to do something purely for the symbolism of it. The crown, as we'll see next time, serves as a memorial, but it's not worn by a king who reigns. So the act that is being acted out is a message And it is a message specifically to the returned exiles whose treasure is taken in order to fashion the crown. They're being taught a lesson. They're being shown a tangible picture of a future reality, very similar to what God has given us in the sacraments, where we have a tangible sign that points us to a future that if we didn't have something We could see something we could hold on to. We might begin to doubt the reality of that coming promise. They're going to get the same thing in the form of this crown. And so the word that is spoken to them is an assurance. It's an assurance that the temple is going to be completed. We take that for granted, of course, but they didn't because it hadn't happened and it seemed unlikely. In fact, that's the big question mark that we saw through the whole prophecy of Haggai. It's the question that that began the prophetic ministry of Zechariah, and that is really kind of under the surface in all of the night visions. Will the temple be built? Can it possibly be reconstructed and completed? And we've been told in Haggai's prophecy, we've been told in Zechariah's visions that indeed the temple will be completed. And so here we see it again. We're told that word that the temple will be built and completed. But there's something else as well. It's not just temple completion that they're being assured of. It's also that there is a coming royal priest. That in the future, a royal priest will come and reign. And that too is a promise that they can rely on. Now, in their own days, they could see a kind of type or shadow of this in the partnership between Zerubbabel and Joshua the way the priest and the king work together hand in hand in leading the people. And that unity, they could see prefigured things to come. But there was going to be a royal priest who combined those two offices, who was both a king and a priest in one person. They're being assured that he will come. And he is, of course, the branch, the branch who is announced here. You know, this man is the branch. Now, the branch is not new to us. We've been introduced to him before in Zechariah's ministry. And indeed, this idea of a branch who is coming isn't even new to the post-exile prophets. Already, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah had spoken of this branch, this branch from the the, the stump of, of Jesse, who was going to flower, who was going to, as our text says, branch out that this branch was coming. But here we do learn some things about the branch, like what to expect from him, how to recognize who he will be. In chapter 3, 
verse 8, the Lord refers to the branch as my servant, the branch. And in that phrase seems to anticipate this combination of king and priest, because the servant, the suffering servant, has a, a priestly function, whereas the branch has a messianic function, which is kingly. And the branch does kingly things. Acts that are reserved for kings, for example, building the temple to the Lord. That's something the king was entrusted in. And now we see that just as the high priest was cleansed in the fourth vision, the iniquity of the land removed in a single day, now the branch will build the temple of the Lord. This word says he will bear royal honor. He will rule on the throne. So priestly duties and kingly duties combined in one person, in the branch. And even that title, the branch, is interesting. So in Hebrew, branch, it's simak, and it comes from the word yitzmak, which is to sprout. So to sprout, or as it's translated here, to branch out suggests an organic metaphor about the Messiah who is to come. He branches out, he grows, in other words. It's not surprising that the Lord who declares himself the, the, the vine would have a, a metaphor of growth as the symbol for people who have seen so much loss to be led by a Lord whose very name suggests new growth, branching out is inspiring. So we see in the branch, the offices of priest and king coming together. There will be one priest king, the messianic branch. The coming Davidic king will be our high priest. King and priest in one person. In other words, Jesus. Jesus. So that once again, as Justin Martyr said last week or two weeks ago, we see the prophecies being made and then the prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. If we want to know who the branch is, if we want to recognize the Messiah, we have to look to one whose duties combine priestly duties of sacrifice, atonement, and kingly duties of temple building, for example, of vanquishing the people's enemies, for example. And in the person of Jesus, in the work of Jesus, we see both. And this is an object lesson to the returned exiles. This crowning, this coronation, witnessing this event is meant to teach them something important. Because the prophecy isn't for Zechariah's sake. Right? God comes to Zechariah, but this is a little bit different from the night visions where Zechariah is full of questions. There seems to be a, a journey of understanding that he's taking. Here, the message isn't for the prophet. The message is for the exiles. The message is for those who witness this crowning and this word spoken to Joshua. Because the exiles, too, are being told by God to act. Just as the prophet has been called to action, the exiles have been called to action. Well, what is the action that they've been called to? What is the thing that they've been told to do? Well what they've been told to do is to crown him. The prophet comes to them. He takes their silver and their gold and he fashions it into a crown. 
And that crown is placed on the head of the priest so that those whose treasure was taken and fashioned into a crown can witness that event. They're not passive participants. They've made the crown. They've contributed the raw material out of which the crown is made. Because if God spoke to them and said, the priest king is coming, crown him. Crown him. And we sing about this. We sing crown him with many crowns. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, how would you do something like that? How would you crown Christ? We are, just as they were, returned exiles. We have been saved from and called out of spiritual Babylon. And God says to us, as well as to them, my servant, the branch is coming, crown him. But how do you do that? How do you crown Jesus? Well, you do it the same way that they did. The way you crown Christ is the same way that they crowned Joshua. You do it by sacrificing your treasure. Imagine how hard this might have been for those exiles, these men who are named by name here. And this is the only time they're mentioned. Feels like accountability. Their silver and their gold is taken from them, but these are men who traveled a long way into what for them was a foreign land, although it was the land of promise. And when you do that, when you undertake a journey like that, how do you prepare? Well, you sell everything you have, you turn it into portable wealth, silver and gold, because what you can carry with you is all you have. To establish yourself in your new home. It's all you have to maintain yourself and your family and your position, your reputation. All of that can be boiled down to the portable wealth that you can bring with you. And so you arrive in Jerusalem from Babylon. You have your silver and your gold with you. And then the prophet comes and says, yeah, I'm going to need some silver and gold because we're going to make a symbol to teach you a lesson. How would you respond to an ask like that for something so precious to you, so essential to you to be taken from you in order to be made into a symbol to teach you a lesson? Do you go along with that? A lot of people wouldn't. I can't give you my treasure, they would say. I'm going to need this myself. Like I've got a, a, a lot ahead of me, unexpected needs may arise. I need this stuff. I can't part with it. There are some people who maybe would be generous in a better cause, but, but certainly would be unwilling to sacrifice something so important for symbolism, for an object lesson. Like I'm not going to give you my treasure just to waste it on a symbol. When God says to us, crown him, we have the same kinds of objections. How can you sacrifice what you have to glorify God if you might need it yourself? It's easy to give out of a position of abundance. But how do you really know what abundance is if you can't anticipate the needs of tomorrow? And does it make sense to sacrifice what you have for a cause like this? Does it make sense to sacrifice 
what you value on symbolism, on the glory of God, who I would imagine is fully capable of glorifying himself without any sacrifice on your part. Surely there are better uses for these things. We could give it to the poor, for example, as Judas suggested. Although, of course, Judas had no intention of following through on that idea. But listen, because you need to hear this. The way to crown Jesus is to sacrifice what you value in order to glorify him. Instead of looking at your silver and your gold and thinking this will solve my problems. You have to look at silver and gold and think this would make a nice crown. These things that have been entrusted to me might work nicely in the service of my king. Imagine what would happen in our lives, in our church, in our community. If we looked at everything that God gave us as raw material for the fashioning of crowns, raw material for crown making, if everything he gave us in whatever form it takes was something that we could refashion into a crown and crown him. If everything we held, we looked at and said, how could this glorify him? If everything in our possession, we examined and said, how can that be made to praise him? What might change if we began to regard things in that light? I know it's easier to think that way when the needs are practical. It's easier when the needs seem more concrete to us. But the sacrifice that we've been called to is not a sacrifice for practical benefits. It's for spiritual ones. Everyone is willing to sacrifice if they're promised something material in return, a good uh, return on investment or some practical benefit. If the exiles had been solicited for the temple fund, And assured that we're going to put a really nice roof on the temple so that when you guys are seated in your place of honor, you won't have to worry about the heat of the sun or something like that. I'm sure it wouldn't have taken much virtue to go along with a sacrifice of that nature. There might even be a nice plaque put up to commemorate that generosity. But literally, they were... Asked, they were called upon to give something up to create a crown that would never be worn by a king who would ever reign, whose function would be purely symbolic. It would exist only to point to a future reality, only as a symbol to glorify the branch who was to come. In order to make a sacrifice like that and feel good about it, those exiles had to be people who believed that the value of the signs might outweigh the practical realities. And what if the signs of Christ to come are infinitely more precious than a roof over your head or a plaque with your name on it? What if glorifying God is of more value than all of the the needs that we put first? What if practical benefits are nothing compared to spiritual benefits. And that too is part of the message to the returned exiles. That's the lesson that they need to learn. And it is the lesson that we need to learn. They faced a huge task of rebuilding, but rebuilding the temple was not the problem. Rebuilding the people was the problem. 
And that's true for us as well. The task ahead of us isn't to, to build a building. It isn't practical benefits. It's to build a people. It is to build a body for Jesus Christ. Because after all, the brick and mortar temple that they built in Jesus's eyes was nothing but a symbol. That was just a sign of things to come. The temple that mattered was the temple of his body. If we believe that, if we want to live that way, then we have to be willing to sacrifice our wealth, our reputations, our dreams, our lives in order to make crowns for his head, crowns to cast at his feet. And when you do it, never think of it as something you're doing for him, something deserving of reward. You don't fashion a crown for Jesus and say to yourself, now he'll owe me, look what I've done. As you do it, the thing to think about, the thing to remember is in this, as in all things, all you're doing is imitating Jesus. Because the thing about the branch, the thing about the royal priest who was promised and then who came is that this is exactly what he did. He sacrificed what was valuable to him in order to fashion a crown and to crown you. He sacrificed everything that mattered, that he could have clung to, but did not cling to. He gave it away and sacrificed it in order to fashion a crown for a great coronation in which he crowns you. So that when we crown him, all we're doing is in our humble way trying to follow after the example of Jesus. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.